Hello, and welcome to this session titled Academic Community Building for Wild Animal Welfare with Cameron Myershaw. I'm Himanshu, and I'll be the MC for this session. Following Cameron's presentation, we'll move on to a live Q&A session where Cameron would, uh, would respond to your questions. You can submit questions through the Subcard live discussion feature. Then after 45 minutes, we'll bring the session to an end. But now I would like to introduce our speaker for this session. Cameron is Executive Director of Wild Animal Initiative, an A-stop charity working to understand and improve the lives of wild animals. He serves on Rethink Priorities Board of Directors. Previously, he worked on the policy and operations teams at the Good Food Institute. Cameron studied biology at Carlton College, where his research focused on tall grass prairie community and ecosystem ecology. Here's Cameron. Hi, everyone. So as Hamanju mentioned, I work for Wild Animal Initiative, and we are a nonprofit founded explicitly on effective altruism principles. And our main goal driving everything we do is we're trying to improve the lives of as many animals in the wild as possible, improve their lives as much as possible and as soon as possible. But the way we do that is kind of counterintuitive. We're not actually out there in the wild planting trees or bandaging birds, broken wings. Uh, we're sitting at our desks trying to build an academic field. And the fact that we're huge nerds is the reason why we enjoy doing that work. But believe it or not, it's not why we chose that strategy. We chose that strategy because we really do think it is the single fastest way that our organization can help as many animals as possible. And it's not just us either. Um, there are a couple other great orgs in this space. Uh, Rethink Priorities and Animal Ethics are also doing uh, really important research and community building. Um, and both of those organizations work primarily outside of academia. But one of the things I love about their work is that they're very strategic about how their work too can contribute to this broader goal of building an academic field, uh, a community of researchers that together are trying to understand the various aspects of what animals' lives are like in the wild and how we can improve their lives uh, safely and sustainably and responsibly. So I want to take a few minutes today to uh, talk a little bit more about that strategy, what we mean by community building and field building, um, and why we think that is such a necessary and effective way to improve the lives of wild animals at scale. So I'm not going to make the whole case for uh, wild animal welfare as a cause area today, but just to make sure we're on the same page, I'm gonna go over um, some of the core ideas underlying it. So first of all, one of the biggest reasons we do this work is because it is big work. Because if you're alive on earth today and you're experiencing things and you're feeling things, you're probably a wild animal. If you're not, that is an extreme aberration. At least 99% of minds today are animals that live in the wild. Um, and humans and captive animals make up 1% uh, of, of vertebrates alone. And then if we start counting invertebrates, uh, the, the numbers skew even more. And animals who live in the wild uh, suffer from human causes, as many of us know, uh, but they also suffer from natural causes. Um, you know, there's disease, starvation, extreme weather, um, all sorts of challenges, which uh, if humans were to experience those kinds of conditions, we would call those conditions poverty. And we would do whatever we could to give those people assistance to live richer, more fulfilling, um, easier lives. And I think that 
wild animals, while they can't communicate uh, directly that um, desire to us, I think it's likely they have a similar desire. Um, I think if a kangaroo is running from a wildfire, um, it's probably not very interested in reading a Guardian think piece on to what extent that wildfire was caused by climate change or not. Uh, a kangaroo doesn't want to be burned alive, and I'm guessing a kangaroo doesn't care whether that fire was started by anthropogenic climate change or simply uh, reckless humans with a uh, campfire that got out of control or um, indigenous Aboriginal Australian um, uh, you know, management practices that have been used for thousands of years or uh, purely a lightning strike in a pure force of nature. It all adds up to a terrible form of death that a kangaroo would rather avoid. And I think in properly compassionate anti-speciesist approach to that problem would take the kangaroo's perspective and understand that we should prevent suffering wherever it occurs, regardless of uh, who started it. And then the the final point I want to make here is uh, that wild animal welfare as a cause area is worth pursuing if you think that per, um, predictably modifying ecosystems is at least possible. Um, it's very complicated, and that's going to be a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. We do not take for granted the fact that when you have many species interacting um, in a constantly changing system, uh, making a change to that system can have lots of effects, uh, some of which are hard to predict, uh, but I don't think it's impossible. I think that um, good work has been done in the past, more of that can be done now, and even better work can be done in the future. And so given the scale of the issue, the fact that we're talking about 99% of us alive and feeling things today, um, I think it's worth trying to figure out more ways to improve the lives of animals in the wild. So that's the basic case for wild animal welfare as a cause area, as a um, highly effective way to make the world a better place. The thesis that I'm going to be uh, explaining in the rest of the talk is how we do that. And uh, the claim I'm making is that supporting the growth of an academic field to improve the lives of wild animals um, is the fastest way that we can do that at scale. So what exactly do I mean by an academic field and how do we build it? Um, so I'm going to give a few disclaimers first, uh, but just to give you a little more to look at here. Um, the, when I say building a field, it's really important um, that I communicate too that that's uh, a nickname for the strategy, uh, but I definitely don't mean to say that we are the only ones involved or the the first people to do the research um, or you know, entirely responsible for success. It's the, entirely the opposite case. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, uh, recognize and appreciate and highlight the work that researchers have already been doing. And we're trying to support the growth of the community of researchers who are continuing to do this work. Um, so we can't do this alone. And we weren't the first ones to start this research, uh, but we want to be as supportive as, prof as possible as a nonprofit outside of academia uh, to help that academic community thrive. And then 
that academic community, that's that's what I'm trying to describe when I use the term field. Um, there is no great definition of what exactly constitutes an academic field or what scale that operates at. Um, but again, broadly, what we're talking about here is a global community of researchers who are working toward a common intellectual agenda, um, asking similar kinds of questions and using similar or complementary kinds of methods. Um, so examples of other academic fields would be things like climate science or conservation biology um, or population ecology. All of these currently exist as global communities of researchers asking similar questions using similar methods. Um, what we don't have yet, at least at scale, is welfare biology or uh, wildlife welfare studies, a number of different things you might call it, but what we're trying to get to is that kind of self-sustaining community of, of researchers. Um, so even though we don't know if field is even necessarily the best term to use, it's, it's what we're using now. And um, we do know that there are at least four main criteria for uh, success in this area. So uh, we've been talking about researchers at right? the core of the field is that we have scientists doing research um, and that um, that needs to be a large community. It's also essential that it be a diverse community, both in terms of academic disciplines and in terms of personal identities uh, in order for that to be a productive and thriving community. Uh, there needs to be recognition both within the field and externally, uh, a recognition about what the field is working on and why it's working on that. Uh, so we need there to be a, a common research agenda. That's part of recognition. Another part of recognition is there needs to be um, respect for the field and its methods uh, among academics and ideally among broader society as well. You know, we want people who work on wild animal welfare to be proud of their work and to know that others will appreciate their contributions uh, to academia, to the advancement of science, and to pressing social issues. Another important part is funding. All these people need money to not only pay their salaries, but to pay competitive salaries and to continuously attract uh, the top talent in the uh, natural sciences. And then of course you need funding to carry out this research. Uh, so there needs to be um, continuous sources of funding uh, from a variety of places to ensure that this field can continue to sustain itself. And then finally, there are institutions and that I mean things like um, not just uh, what we might typically call uh, institutions, you know, academic institutions, universities, departments at universities, program centers, those are all important. Um, we're also using institutions here to cover things like journals or conferences or professional societies, um, any sort of um, organization or organizing unit that is continuing to bring these people and these ideas and this funding all in contact with each other uh, so that this research doesn't happen in isolation, but all builds and can um, accelerate our uh, understanding of wild animal welfare. And how do we actually get all those things to happen? Uh, well, that's where Wild Animal Initiative comes in. So this uh, bottom row here shows our three main programs, research, grants, and services. And that's all we do all day, every day. So I wish I had much more time to talk about it. Um, but briefly, I'll just explain that our 
research program is where we do um, exploratory research in order to scope out um, new lines of investigation. This often looks like doing literature reviews to pull together what work has already been done and to point out the, the interesting gaps in our knowledge and how filling those gaps could um, advance our understanding of wild animal welfare. So the research we do is typically not with the aim of definitively answering any one question or identifying a single best intervention, um, but rather research that is aimed at catalyzing research uh, that others can continue. Our grant making program uh, is an important part of others continuing that research. This is a program where we hand out cash to other researchers who are doing promising projects. Um, we have two main ways of doing that. The first is through our um, call for proposals through which we um, fund promising projects. We'll, so we'll put out a call on specific topics that are especially high priority in wild animal welfare and neglected so far. And we'll explain exactly what we think uh, highly effective projects in that area will look like. And then, um, uh, researchers respond to that call with expressions of interests. We invite full proposals from there and we end up funding the best of those projects. So our first call for proposals got 297 expressions of interest. We struggled to narrow that down to 50 really high quality um, uh, proposals. So I was very impressed with uh, just the, the overall quality of, of the research here. And uh, I think the, the fields I'm pleasantly uh, embarrassed to say was even further advanced than we realized. Um, and out of those, we picked uh, seven projects to fund in full and another seven that we were working on um, funding collaboratively or, or funding in part. Um, so that was just from our first call and we're um, continuing to, to do that on, on other subjects. Uh, another part of our grant making program is supporting the careers of specific people who we think could um, contribute to this field in the long run. So that's through our fellowships where we fund someone to work in a lab for a certain amount of time. And then finally, there's our services program. Uh, so our services encompasses broadly our various attempts to provide uh, other kinds of value to researchers in, in this field to support their careers, to make it as easy as possible to contribute to the field um, and to make it um, interesting and useful to engage with our work. So that looks like things like um, networking services and um, uh, we're hoping to uh, host a job board soon and um, we're developing trainings on certain technical skills so that people can come to us, learn things, and um, hopefully learn more about our work as they do it. So that's a, a brief summary of what we do at Wild Animal Initiative. Finally, I wanna point out that there's um, a lot of great work that is starting to happening and much more that should be happening um, outside of academia that can feed back into the academic field building project. Um, so advocacy on behalf of promising early stage interventions, um, policy to adopt those kinds of things or to <laughs> incorporate the, um, uh, the interests of animals in policymaking procedures such as environmental impact assessments, um, you know, pilot projects to, to try out those, um, those things that scientists are starting to suggest might be promising ways to help animals in the wild. Um, you know, all this form of, of, of movement building can help generate that um, social support for this research and can um, develop and identify new areas of research and um, overall just drive that field forward. So now I'm going to get into the case for um, why we need to do this field building at all. So 
just tried to explain what it looks like. And, and now I'm trying to explain why. So we'll start with why research, right? Because there are plenty of cause areas where research is not the thing we need, where the thing we need rather is mobilization or fundraising or operations or execution. Um, but wild animal welfare is uh, unusual in just how much of the basic knowledge we're missing. Um, so something as simple as what are the most common causes of death for wild animals? That's something that is not known for the vast majority of animal species. Um, death seems like a likely to be a very painful event in many circumstances. Um, seems like a promising way to improve wild animal welfare would be to reduce the most painful causes of death or reduce early causes of death. Um, but we don't even know the basic landscape of, of why we're working here. Then there's the question of, of monitoring and evaluation. What actually works and um, how do we know how to prioritize among different issues? Um, so there are lots of promising physiological indicators of welfare, like uh, so-called stress hormones or um, telomeres as uh, biomarkers of aging, a bunch of different things that could be useful here for getting an objective sense of how, um, how well off is an animal in a moment or how uh, stressful has their life been overall. Um, so there are promising directions to go here, but uh, a lot of work left to be done before we can confidently say for a range of species, what is their welfare and which uh, conditions are better for them than others. And importantly, within these knowledge gaps are crucial considerations. So it's not just that we would like to know more, but it's that among the things we don't know, uh, some of those questions could have answers that could entirely reverse the sign of the interventions we might pursue. Uh, so one example of this would be uh, net negative lives. Right. So farm to animal advocacy, much of it is based on the understanding that um, factory farmed chickens, for example, live lives that are full of so much pain um, and discomfort that those chickens would rather not have been alive at all if they were given the choice and if they had full knowledge, um, you know. And I think you and I would probably make the same choice if we were given the opportunity to become a chicken in a factory farm, we'd rather just not experience that at all. Uh, and the idea is there is that there, that's a, a net negative life, one where the suffering uh, outweighs the, the happiness that comes from that experience. It's theoretically possible, at least, that wild animal populations could uh, experience the same thing, at least some populations. Um, for example, ones where uh, the, a species has evolved a reproductive strategy of having many, many offspring and investing very few resources in each of those offspring. And instead of just sort of gambling across that um, reproductive investment uh, that a few might survive. Um, so in, when those species where the vast majority of them die very young, it might be the case that uh, they would rather not be born into that uh, existential gamble. Um, and that they'd rather not suffer the likely early death um, just for the sake of maybe living a longer adulthood. Again, this is theoretical at this point, because like I said, we, we don't have the monitoring and evaluation tools to really um, tell what the, what the actual situation is, um, but it's an interesting and, and concerning idea. And it means that we can't take for granted, for example, that simply raising wild animal populations is always in those animals' best interests. So that's just an example of one of several um, crucial considerations that uh, we still need to understand in the area of wild animal welfare. So research is part of answering those questions right, of identifying what is the thing that we want to advocate for. Uh, that's a huge form of the value it provides. 
Uh, but I also want to point out that it provides different kinds of values all along that theory of change. So it's not just a question of identifying what do we want to advocate for, um, but it's also informing policymaking around um, the implementation of those decisions. Um, so it adds legitimacy to the ideas and to the project broadly. Um, it can help develop technology to implement those projects in the field. Um, and research can also help evaluate the impacts of projects once we implement them um, to see if they actually are helping animals um, on net, right? So not just the animals we might be targeting, but also any others in the system um, and making sure we're having a good effect. And inevitably, we're going to find sometimes that uh, we've made mistakes and research can help us identify those and pivot as quickly as possible. But why academia? There are plenty of great groups that are doing uh, lots of research outside of academia. There's think tanks like Rethink Priorities, um, who are you know, assembling highly talented teams and working independently to just uh, go straight towards the most interesting questions, uh, publish white papers and send them straight to funders and decision makers. Um, research outside of academia has a lot of benefits to it. Academia is super slow. There's all this bureaucracy and politics. It's expensive. There are tons of reasons why um, individual researchers and um, uh, movements might be frustrated with academia and might not want to work within it. But it just so happens that in the case of wild animal welfare, the particular strengths of academia play right toward the particular challenges of wild animal welfare. So as we were discussing, one of the challenges of wild animal welfare is that it's highly complex. You know, we're talking about many species and their interactions and, and minds who we don't understand. Um, academia, fortunately, is developed to um, train more experts and to uh, empower those experts to dive deep into complex topics. Um, so just uh, one of thousands of examples that we could use here. Um, many of us take for granted the idea that pesticides are obviously bad for birds. That is actually not obvious at all. The reason pesticides are bad for birds is a long, complicated chain of ecological interactions that researchers like Rachel Carson and her contemporaries were able to identify, document, and then credibly prove to the public and to Congress. And um, legislation was passed to that effect. And, uh, you know, public consciousness was raised. And uh, their, the, their ability to develop expertise in this one particular area um, has now led to a major advance in knowledge, uh, both uh, among scientists and among the general public. Another thing that's uh, attractive about the field of wild animal welfare, as we discussed, is the scale of it, just how many animals are at stake. Uh, that's also you know, a pretty daunting challenge, right? We're talking about 99% of the mines alive on earth today. Uh, you know, that is plenty for generations worth of, of good doing. Uh, it's gonna be a long time before we solve every last problem there is in the wild. Um, so any approach we take toward improving the welfare of wild animals, the more that can be a long lasting approach, the more likely our initial efforts are to have um, downstream effects uh, that will um, be you know, particularly rewarding the more time that goes on. Academia, while famously slow, is also famously long lived. Um, consider, for example, uh, the case of the first humans to arrive on New Zealand. Uh, they were the Maori, the, um, some of the best sailors that 
ever lived, incredibly technologically advanced in skills. And um, it was an impressive achievement of theirs to reach this far off island where they found moas at the time, giant 12 foot tall flightless predatory birds uh, who they hunted eventually to extinction. Um, so this was a, a long time ago, a very different world. Um, but by the time those humans set foot on New Zealand for the first time, Cambridge University had already been around for 100 years. And Cambridge University was started because of a uh, tough with Oxford University, which was started 200 years before that. Uh, so academia, these exact academic institutions have existed in the same place with the same names. And in the case of Oxford, with some of the same pretty weird tutoring systems uh, for uh, almost a thousand years. And then another big challenge in wild animal welfare is the uncertainty, right? So this is the complexity of the issues. There's how long it'll take to solve them, but then any given area, if you start trying to um, make progress there, you know, we're gonna come up with hypotheses and we're gonna um, test them out and we'll probably be wrong, right? Like, again, this uh, issue is the fundamental issue at stake here is that we're trying to act in the interests of individuals who can't communicate directly to us, much like children can communicate directly to us before they learn to speak. But unlike children, they have very different minds. You know, they're like, like our pets, you know, they um, have different, um, you know, evolutionary backgrounds and different interests. And, you know, unlike our pets, some of them don't make, you know, uh, cute appealing noises. So it's, it's difficult and, you know, it has all the risks that paternalistic action always has. But unfortunately, we are the only adults in the room and we have to try to take on those risks. Uh, but we want a vessel for taking on those risks that's able to identify mistakes and correct them. Again, academia is unusually good at that kind of thing. Um, advancement in academia is often based on the, one's ability to discover new areas and um, advance novel ideas. Uh, so there are professional incentives to find errors in the ideas of others and to correct them. So. One example that sticks out to me here is uh, Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 1980s saw that feminist theory, which had made advances in lots of areas, still had this gaping hole where it failed to account for the reality of the lived experiences of people who have overlapping oppressions. Until that time, feminists had been treating overlapping oppressions as simply additive. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw formalized the idea of um, intersectionality, uh, which explained how intersecting oppressions can be multiplicative and there can be unique emergent effects in those experiences. Uh, so that was an idea that she was able to formalize and advance in debate and um, pretty quickly became widely accepted, not only in academia, but also on the front lines of um, social justice activism. Uh, so again, we have an example of a strength of academia that is particularly well-suited to the challenges of wild animal welfare. But why now? Uh, there are plenty of urgent problems we're facing, important ones, crucial ones, many with major threshold events just around the corner. Why not just focus on those? Unfortunately, I, I wish we could separate those things out and do only one thing at a time first than the other. Uh, but for several of these urgent, important issues that our society is facing, uh, they actually interact directly with wild animal welfare. And so the urgency of those other issues increases the urgency of understanding how to improve the lives of animals in the wild. Mitigating climate change is one of those. Um, so 
as we respond to climate change, we're going to have to make huge changes to the Earth's surface. I think there's likely to be large scale reforestation, for example, but we don't know how that will affect wild animals. We don't know what kinds of forests are best or would they prefer grasslands or wetlands um, or are there certain kinds of um, crops that would be better than others? Uh, you know, this is again, large sections of the earth's surface that will host many wild animals. And if this is going to be a just transition, uh, we need to understand what would be just for the animals that will live there as well. Ending intensive animal agriculture is a change that I'm very much looking forward to, that we are intentionally accelerating uh, because the existence of factory farming is an extreme uh, moral evil that um, you know, should be ended as quickly as possible. And I don't mean that we should slow that down at all, but I do think it's important to recognize that that will have consequences for other animals. So one of the exciting things about in ending factory farming is that uh, we'll no longer have to waste all of this agricultural land on growing feed crops just to feed to animals who will then feed to humans right in a inherently calorically inefficient process um, and if you fly over the united states or many other areas of the world uh, for hours and hours you'll see corn and soybean fields all dedicated exclusively to feeding farmed animals so if we switch to a plant-based economy then um uh, we'll need a much smaller portion of that agricultural land that is exciting for many reasons but it's unclear what that means for wild animals we don't know what kind of land is going to replace that land is that going to be other farmland is it going to be wild land is it going to be developed is it going to be used for carbon sequestration um you know there's any number of things that could happen there um some of them might be actively bad for wild animals. Some of them might be good. Maybe they're all good, but they could be good to very different degrees. Uh, again, we're finding ourselves at a, a hinge of history for, for wild animals, a time of unusual um, ecological transformation. And if we make that transformation without accounting how it affects the majority of animals, then I don't think we can actually call that a win for animals. Unfortunately, the, the work doesn't end when the slaughterhouse is closed. It, it really just begins another chapter of it. And so we need to be as prepared as possible for when that time comes to understand how to use that transition to benefit um, as many as possible. And then a final example would be aligning transformative AI. And this is something I should flag that I know much less about, um, but I'm very interested in the challenge of getting um, highly advanced artificial intelligence to reliably act in humans' interests. That alone seems like a hugely challenging problem. Um, not at all clear how to do that. Um, it seems plausible that uh, understanding the needs of species and minds who are vastly different from our own might affect our uh, approach to the alignment problem. Um, or maybe more simply, if we're just, um, it might just be a matter of like what kind of data um, AI systems have to draw on and what they'll be concluding about our society and our, our priorities from that. And uh, it might be the case that the more uh, we can demonstrate that wild animals are a priority and should be a priority, the more likely um, AI systems are to benefit um, all of uh, sentient life on earth. So those are all reasons why we have to uh, make sure not to wait too long, why uh, we, we can't just delay uh, it later. But you might think that uh, if wild animal welfare is uh, so urgent, maybe uh, field building is too slow. Maybe we need to act even quicker. 
So I think the, the way I go about thinking about this is um, through an analogy like this. Um, so if you were to walk by a shallow pond with a child drowning in it, and you were to ignore that child and let them drown, um, I would think you were a terrible person. If you did anything other than immediately jump in and save that poor baby, you're a terrible person. But if you walk by a river that has a hundred drowning babies and you do immediately jump in to save one of them, I think that makes you a terrible person. I think that's not an option. That is not a morally acceptable option to just rush and do the first easy thing when clearly the stakes are so much higher and you're likely to need a form of action that is much different from the one you use um, for smaller scale problems. I think you have a moral obligation in this circumstance to uh, run back for help. Or, you know, if you're in the middle of the wilderness and there's no help, maybe you look for a tree branch to put across the river um, to keep the babies from floating away. Like, at the very least, take 30 seconds to decide what you're going to do. I think this is the situation we're in with wild animal welfare. It is a, a urgent problem, but also a huge problem. And the way we balance those things is that we have to quickly invest in large scale ways of understanding how to address the whole problem or large sections of the problem. Um, and we can't settle for only pursuing um, the most tractable interventions right now. We need to figure out what would be more tractable for more of the individuals affected. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but one thing I've been told about the human mind is that people don't like it when you end a presentation with a hundred babies drowning. So to that effect, here's one last point I want to make. Um, here's a picture of Edward Jenner in 1796 administering uh, the first smallpox vaccine, or at least the first smallpox vaccine that was demonstrated to be effective um, to a child, perhaps shortly after he gave it to eight-year-old uh, James Phil. And uh, Jenner, I think it's really incredible to think about, uh, was experimenting with this new method. Others had developed it before. He, he demonstrated that it worked. Um, and he's often celebrated as the, the inventor of the vaccine. Uh, but it's really important to understand that he was not the only one, that he heard about this idea probably from his mentors um, with whom he was an apprentice. And they heard about it from another physician who lived in an entirely different part of England, but who they met at the 18th century version of an academic conference. And it's through that exchange of ideas that this occurred to Jenner at all. Um, and then within Jenner's lifetime, he was able to see the use of the smallpox vaccine, uh, smallpox vaccine vastly scaled up uh, by 1804, mere eight years later. Uh, Napoleon was vaccinating his entire army and giving Jenner a medal to thank him for his service to humanity. Um, but Jenner also wanted to eliminate all of smallpox from all the earth. And eventually by the 1980s, that did happen. Um, it became the first and so far the only disease that humanity has entirely eradicated. So that's a tremendous accomplishment and Jenner was rightly celebrated, but he didn't do it alone and he could not have ever done it alone. The total eradication of smallpox, it required not just one physician, it required a whole field of medicine, it required contributions from many different areas, expertise of many humans that could not fit in, in one human lifetime. Um, so. That's what makes me excited about building an academic field for wild animal welfare. It's thinking about 
over the long run, how much more we could accomplish, how much more good we can do if we're not just working alone, but if we can support the growth of a global community of researchers who understand a common set of problems and who bring a wide variety of expertise to solving different components of that. Um, and it's, you know, it's just incredible to think how far we might be able to get. And the interventions I'm most excited about are the ones that I can't imagine right now. Um, Jenner couldn't imagine that many of us today get to see our friends and go to conferences and go to um, visit our grandmothers because we got a free mRNA vaccine. And I started to say mRNA vaccine in part because sometimes it takes me a second to remember what mRNA stands for. Um, and I don't know how it works and I couldn't make it myself. Um, and even if you don't know what mRNA stands for, at least you know what germs are. Jenner didn't even know what germs are. He was operating in such darkness, um, intellectually speaking, and yet he was still able to start something that with the help of others, uh, eventually did tremendous good for the world. So I think that's what we might be able to achieve with wild animal welfare. Use the tools we have now to identify promising interventions at the same time as using the tools we have now to develop a community that can make even better uh, good in the future. So I think it's the kind of issue that is far too important to wait to act, but it's also far too urgent to rush. We don't have time to mistakes. We don't have time to make mistakes and we have to invest now in uh, building the capacity to tackle this problem at scale. Thank you. Hi, uh, hello again. And thank you. Uh, thank you, Cameron, for such a wonderful presentation. It was quite enlightening. And uh, uh, now we can move on to the Q&A. And let's start with the first question uh, from Melda. And uh, Melda asks uh, that, uh, Melda says that uh, I'm intuitively of the belief that wild animal uh, interests matter morally and politically, but I'm perplexed at how we would uh, go on about these uh, interventions. A great majority of wild animals die in infancy, and those who do reach adulthood often suffer from disease, predation, etc. Then there are many uh, pressing moral questions to consider. How would we control predation, for example? Wouldn't modifying ecosystems turn nature into zoos? And uh, uh, Melda apologizes that uh, uh, she realizes that these questions are very difficult to answer. Yeah, so you know, the short answer is yes. Those are difficult questions, and that's why we're trying to build a community capable of answering difficult questions. Um, and there are a lot of different questions there, and they're intersecting, but they also require different areas of expertise. So again, this is the kind of bundle of thorny issues uh, that I think you need a lot of people collaborating on. Uh, and so overall, I think these are answerable, answerable questions, um, but we also don't have the answers now. Uh, I'll call out predation in particular as maybe the last problem we'll solve. That is very tricky. It involves directly conflicting interests between um, entirely different species of animals. Um, it's, it's really not clear what you would do about that. Um, you know, I'll allow the possibility, maybe there's nothing you can ever do about that. Uh, but like many effective artists, I like to be open-ended about the far future might hold. Um, 
So I'm much more interested, though, in the, the nearer term imaginable actions, um, I think, would be focusing on causes of suffering that don't necessarily um, pit the interests of uh, species against each other. So one of those would be a common cause of the infant mortality you mentioned is uh, death from starvation due to resource limitation. So many populations live in a state where uh, they reproduce so much that uh, they start competing with each other for food and they reach their carrying capacity, not because they're being um, eaten by predators all the time, but because they're actually starving as often as they're being born. Um, and when you're in that situation, uh, if you try to add more food to the system, then that will be good for one generation of juveniles, uh, but then more of them will survive and then more of them will have more babies and then you'll just reach the same um, issue of being constrained by starvation, which is a really terrible way of being. Um, one of the ways that humans have um, escaped this um, this trap is by developing birth control methods for ourselves. And I think that there's quite likely opportunities to um, uh, extend the same support to animals. So there are contraceptives that have been developed for several kinds of wildlife, mostly in cases of human wildlife conflict. So for the control of animals that are considered pests like rats and pigeons, um, these contraceptives not only negate the ability or the need to use lethal methods to control populations. So they're replacing poison, um, but they're also doing something more, which is that they're replacing the um, starvation of many of those juveniles. So um, uh, there's a lot more that could be said about that. And we've written more about it on our, our website and Rethink Priorities has done a lot of research into contraception as well. Um, but I'll just call that out as an example of what it might look like. You know, We might be able to develop um, more oral contraceptives that we could distribute at scale in ways that would um, maybe even keep the total adult population the same, but shift the population from being one of many juveniles starving and um, competing with each other to one where there's... Uh, a you know, set of healthy adults and fewer babies, but more of them surviving. I think that would overall be a, a higher welfare situation. Yeah, uh, thank you, Cameron, for that answer. And uh, with that, uh, let's move to the next question. Here, uh, Tristan has asked, uh, for many today, especially in the US, the turn away from religion has led to a certain spiritual void that it seems many have filled with a uh, reverence for nature raised on by uh, David uh, Attenborough and uh, John Moore, there seems to be an, uh, a necessary rejection of this concept of nature as a pure good when one comes to treat wild animal welfare issues seriously. How might, you, how might you or how have you gone about navigating this issue? Yeah, um, I, I recognize that issue. I would um, push back on one element of it, which is that um, uh, accepting that wild animals interests matter and that we have some obligation to help them doesn't require rejecting that there is some pure good to nature um there are a bunch of different philosophical approaches that converge on the idea that when there is uh, extreme amounts of suffering that you can uh easily prevent and especially when you're the only actor capable of it uh that that is a, a good thing and maybe a necessary thing to do 
Um, and our experience just practically reaching out to scientists has been that um, most people working in conservation biology or ecology or um, you know, people, the sorts of people who have exactly the kinds of skills that could contribute to wild animal welfare um, and who also um, are interested in nature and ecosystems, you know, existing in their historic states, um, those people often don't see those things as necessarily in conflict. They have many values, there are many kinds of things they like, and they would like for nature to stay natural, but they would also like for there to be less suffering in nature. And um, we found many people who are happy to, to work with us, um, despite um, having, uh, you know, e even if there's not perfect or philosophical overlap. All right, so uh, moving on to the next question, Diego has asked, uh, do you have any ongoing projects studying the possibility of genetic, in, uh, genetic engineering to improve the lives of wild animals? Mm. We do not right now. Um, I think that genetic engineering is something that could in the future be used to improve the lives of wild animals um, quite precisely and quite uh, cost-effectively. Um, unfortunately, the technology is not there right now, and much more importantly, the social acceptance is not there right now. Um, so um, genetically engineered foods uh, seem to be relatively uh, quite safe for human health and quite safe for the environment, but many people don't share that belief because the way genetically engineered foods were um, introduced to the population was quite recklessly with a lot of um, corporate greed and like many actual mistakes were made. And so a lot of trust was lost, huge regulatory barriers were put up and that field was set back by decades. Uh, we don't want to repeat that with the genetic engineering of animals. And so I think it's appropriate and perhaps much more strategic to wait for genetic engineering advances to be made in issues that purely advance human issues like um, the use of genetic engineering to produce mosquitoes that don't uh, spread malaria, for example. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And for the next question, we have Ryan asking, what is your elevator pitch to get people to consider wild animal welfare as a good in itself? Yeah, I think um, you don't have to convince people. You just have to help them realize most of them that this is something they already value. Um, uh, I think that most people just don't have the language for it. Um, but, um, you know, many of us uh, have uh, non-human pets whose welfare we value, and we'd rather not see them suffer. So we, we know that there are animals out in the world who, who can't suffer if we don't want to. Um, and many of us uh, donate to charities that help people across the world who are suffering from malaria. Um, and we don't want them to suffer, even though we didn't cause their suffering. Uh, and so wild animal welfare is really the intersection of, of those kinds of moral instincts uh, that other species matter, uh, that we should prevent their suffering, even if we didn't cause it, even if they don't live close to us. And wild animals uh, exist in such huge numbers and probably face such huge amounts of suffering um, that unfortunately it's a, it's a sad situation, um, sad state of affairs for the world, but fortunately uh, for people who wanna do good, seems like a really promising way to do a lot of good. I see, yeah, uh, thank you Cameron for your answers. And uh, since we are out of time, I don't think I'll be able to ask you more questions from, uh, from SoftCard. But yeah, uh, I'd like to thank you from, uh, from the audience and everyone here uh, for your great talk and all the answers.
And uh, yeah, I would also like to mention that uh, there is a uh, meetup happening just after this uh, this session, around after 15 minutes, a environmental welfare meetup where everyone can join and uh, continue this discussion maybe. Yeah, and again, thank you, Cameron. Thank you so much, Manchu. Thank you, everyone.